Before we get to today's show, we invite you to join a virtual celebration of literature. Aspen Words, a program of the Aspen Institute, is holding its Literary Prize Ceremony on April 21st at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. NPR's Mary Louise Kelly will moderate the hour-long program, which will include conversations with prize finalists. The winner of the prize, a $35,000 award for fiction with social impact, will be announced at the free event. Register at aspenwords.org. This is Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Author Isabel Wilkerson says there's an unseen phenomena in America today, a hidden caste system that ranks human value. Race is the metric by which one's position in the caste system is determined. It's about power, says Wilkerson, which groups have it and which ones don't, and it was born out of American history. You know, these are inherited rankings that have been passed down uh, through the generations from the very founding of our country, where the colonists created, you know, a bipolar system in which they established themselves, the English colonists established themselves as the, the dominant group. Today, Wilkerson talks about her book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontent. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from Aspen Words Winter Words author series. Isabel Wilkerson, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, says she began using the word caste after studying and writing about the Jim Crow South. The terms racism or prejudice don't sufficiently describe what survivors of this era endured. She says America's caste system is alive and well today. It's the underlying architecture of division that determines things like whether someone has access to resources and receives respect in society. In her book, she writes about the health costs of caste, in depression and life expectancy, and how this hierarchy affects our culture and politics. She speaks with Elizabeth Alexander about the cruel logic of caste. Alexander is a poet and leads the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Here's Alexander. Welcome, Isabel. It is so wonderful to be here with you. I'm delighted. Well, we have many, many, many things to talk about in this extraordinary book and in this extraordinary book alongside your, your body of work. I wanted to start by asking you first and also by saying the writerliness, the writerly beauty of cast, the sort of genre defyingness of cast, which I'd love to talk about later. It's It's got hardcore historian work. It's got hardcore social science work. There's allegory, there are personal stories, um, there are pithy philosophical um, meditations. So it is, it is a book of, of many voices. And I would love to ask you to start by reading a section of your choice. So the passage I'm reading, it's from the epilogue. Regardless of who prevails in any given election, the country still labors under the divisions that a caste system creates and the fears and resentments of a dominant caste that is too often in opposition to the yearnings of those deemed beneath them. It is a danger to the species and to the planet to have this depth of unexamined grievance and discontent in the most powerful nation in the world. A single election will not solve the problems that we face if we haven't dealt with the structure that created, created the imbalance to begin with. As it stands, the United States is facing a crisis of identity unlike any before. 
the country is headed toward an inversion of its demographics with its powerful white majority expected to be outnumbered by people not of European descent within two decades. This is unknown territory for everyone in the hierarchy, an ethnic distribution that could potentially look closer to that of South Africa than to what Americans have grown accustomed to. Anticipatory fear seems already to have surfaced, but if history is any guide, a change in demographics might have less of a material effect on the dominant caste than imagined. A 2016 study found that if disparities in wealth were to continue at the current pace, it would take black families 228 years to amass the wealth that white families now have and Latinx families another 84 years to reach parity. Thus, as in South Africa, there would be no reason to believe that economic, social, and in America, political dominance would not still remain in the hands of those who have held it for the entirety of the country's history. This will be a test of the cherished ideal of majority rule, the moral framework for caste dominance in America since its founding. White dominance has already been assured by the inherited advantages of the dominant caste in most every sphere of life and of governing, from gerrymandered districts to voter suppression to the electoral college, which favors the dominant caste, whatever the numbers. Will the United States adhere to its belief in majority rule if the majority does not look as it has throughout history? This will be a chance for America either to further entrench its inequalities or to choose to lead the world as the exceptional nation that we have proclaimed ourselves to be. Thank you. Uh, and I, sh I should add to the genres, the sermon that had me making noises <laughs> as I was listening to you preach the sermon of this very moment. Yeah. Of this very moment. So, I mean, you've taken us, you've situated us at this crossroads or a potential crossroads, let's say. And I think that you've brought us there now, but that's also where the book has taken us, right there. Can you say more about what you chose to read? I wanted to read it because essentially this is again from the epilogue. And that means that by the time a reader has arrived at this passage, they have been fully immersed in this phenomenon, the phenomenon of caste. And the reader now knows, realizes the stakes and the gravity of the situation uh, of this reckoning. By this time, the reader has felt the full weight of the history we've inherited. And the reader knows by this time that we must understand this if we are to transcend it. And this was written, by the way, before the election, clearly, mm -hmm. uh, but it's written with an awareness that it would be true because of the enduring nature of the caste system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you, of course, you also set us up, I mean, the, the book is, is not only uh, organized around elections, but you have some scenes previous to the 2016 election yeah. uh, where you're beginning to think about how to read the country in the terms that you lay out for us in this book. And so I would love for you to talk about the choice of caste, the term, the choice yeah. of caste that can, can carry race and other categories with it, but is not what you might expect race. 
Well, you know, I, I came to use of the term cast uh, through the first book, The Warmth of the Sons, uh, in which, you know, as, as you know, it was, it was about the out-migration, the defection really of six million African-Americans from the South to all points uh, in the rest of the country. And in doing so, I was, you know, charged with, you might say, describing what it was that they were fleeing. I mean, why did six million people evacuate the Jim Crow South during much of the 20th century. And in doing so, I was, you know, describing, recreating, you might say, the world that they were they were forced to flee. And in doing so, I realized that the term racism, which is a significant and important way of understanding aspects of our country's history, but racism alone did not seem to capture the depth of control, the totalitarian, authoritarian uh, impulses, the, the, the depth of control of the boundaries, the effort to remind at every step, every moment of one's life, a reminder of the hierarchy and a reminder that any breach of that hierarchy could literally mean your life, a matter of life and death. I mean, this is a world where it was against the law for black people and white people to merely play checkers again in Birmingham. It was mm -hmm. a world where in courtrooms throughout the South, there was actually a black Bible and an altogether separate white Bible to swear to tell the truth on in court. That meant that, that you know, the very word of God was segregated. That's how seriously they took this, you know, hallmark uh, of caste, which is purity and pollution, which meant that the same sacred object could not so much as be held and touched by hands of different races. Mm -hmm. So this went beyond you know, not, you know, prejudice and, and it's just not liking a group of people or hating a group of people. This was, this went far beyond that. And so, you know, in, in the process of not only, you know, hearing the testimony of more than 1200 people who survived the Jim Crow caste system, I also, you know, became aware of and studied the work of anthropologists who had gone into the Jim Crow South during the, the depth of that, of that regime and had emerged after, after immersing themselves with it in, in participant observation and ethnographies, uh, they emerged using the term caste. They had lived it, they had studied it, they were experts in, in, in human interactions and they, they emerged with the term caste. And so that's how I came to use the word caste in my own work. And then when I went out talking about the warmth of the suns and of course the many people who read it, it just seemed as if it just sort of rolled uh, into the consciousness, people seem to just roll with the word. And as I would talk about it, no one was, you know, people truly got it because it was mm. clear that this was a, a, a repressive regime. It was, it was so extreme. Uh, and of course, this is the birthplace, you know, Virginia was the birthplace of our country. This is the birthplace of the caste system itself. And it, you know, this was the most um, extreme manifestation of, of what I'm calling a caste system in our country, um, which of course had manifestations in the rest of the country. But in, in the end, what I'm trying to say is that that is how I came to use the word caste. Um, in my own work. And then that just sort of was the way I began to see the world. Mm -hmm. And and also to to see the world because, you know, we have travels where you go deeply into understanding the Indian caste system, where you are thinking deeply about how caste plays out in Germany and Nazi Germany. And between those places and the United States, I think uh, maybe some some surprising but fascinating historical connections in those ideologies? Well, I would say first I, I should give a, a you know, what, what I came to see as the definition of caste 
um, as it manifested in these different societies uh, that I chose to focus in on. And so caste essentially is an artificial, arbitrary graded ranking of human value in a society. Um, it is what determines one standing, respect, benefit of the doubt that is accorded or withdrawn, uh, access to resources, which again are accorded or denied, um, assumptions of competence, intelligence, resourcefulness, beauty even. These are accorded a person or withheld from them. No action of, on your part is required. You know, these are inherited rankings that have been passed down uh, through the generations from the very founding of our country where the colonists created um, you know, a bipolar system in which they established themselves, the English colonists established themselves as the, the dominant group and then decimated the numbers of, of indigenous people and drove them from their land and then transported Africans to be enslaved to build uh, the colony and thus the United States out of wilderness. And in so doing with the laws that ensued in, in Virginia colony and Maryland, that they thus enshrined what would ultimately be a caste system in which everything that you could and could not do was based upon what you look like, where race became the metric by which one's position in the caste system was determined. But caste itself is the underlying architecture of division. It's the underlying infrastructure of division. That, that allows us to see what we have in common, those points of intersection with other societies that have caste hierarchies. And so you mentioned India and where in which purity and pollutionism is a salient hallmark uh, of that society in which uh, uh, people assigned to the, to the lowest caste, the sub subordinated caste known as untouchables and now known as Dalits were to many of the people of the lowest caste. And there are many, many castes within caste there. But in any case, those at the bottom were uh, to remain as many as 96 paces away from those uh, in, a, uh, in the dominant or upper caste. They, of course, could not use the wells, the common wells, this idea of water, the sacred nature of water, of this you know, element of life itself was strictly controlled and, and, and kept separate um, in each of these, these systems that I looked at. And of course, you know, I looked at India, which was the oldest caste system on a planet really. And then of course, looking at Nazi Germany, which was a compressed 12 year reign of terror in which they applied many of the hallmarks of, of a caste system in, in building up the Third Reich. And they, uh, across time and across space, across oceans, all three of them had a fixation with purity and pollution with water as one of the main um, main ways of setting a boundary so that the, 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 the Germans, uh, the Aryans would, would keep uh, Jewish people from being able to use the waters, the pools and the beaches uh, uh, that the Aryans were using. And in our own country, you know, throughout the country, not only in the South, pools and beaches and waterways were that were designated for the dominant group, meaning white people, were strictly prohibited uh, from uh, uh, African-Americans, black people were prohibited from using them. And this, these were matters of life and death. Uh, in, in Chicago, for example, uh, 1919, a young teenager happened to wade into what was seen as the white water, uh, whatever that means, because the water looks the same, but there was a dividing line and he happened to wade into what was seen as the white water and he was stoned to death for having done so. And this mm -hmm. set off one of the riots uh, that uh, race riots of 1919, Red Summer. And so these it, these things, any breach of the caste system in any of these three societies uh, could mean your, mean your very life. Mm. And as I listen to you speak, I think about the perverse imagination 
of caste, the perverse interest in the details of language and symbols, uh, you know, a black Bible, a white Bible, 96 steps, different bodies of water. You have a whole chapter where you talk about the enduring symbols of caste in the United States in the Confederate monuments. And that is, uh, is really uh, some chapter because you juxtapose the hundreds of Robert E. Lees uh, on, uh, you know, in statues and in other kinds of public spaces with a conversation about Germany and the swastika as an outlawed symbol, no statues venerating Hitler and so forth. Could you talk more about, first of all, just why that difference in those two societies, your theories, uh, and about the power of those um, material symbols? You know, the, the, the histories are, they, they are very different. I mean, all of these, these three societies are very, very different. There are these points of intersection. And this is a place where it diverges. I mean, one of the reasons it diverges is because that was a compressed 12-year reign. They were defeated completely in war. They have been spending the decades since that time, you know, attempting to atone, reconcile, understand, uh, study, and then also more importantly, teach, you know, young people and everyone in the country what happened. It was a complete and total vanquishing of that uh, system. And, you know, they have now converted you know, the, the symbols of Nazism, the places that, you know, the various departments of the Third Reich, they have converted those into museums for, where people are now, anyone from around the world can now study and learn, walk along those corridors and learn what happened there so that they, it will never, ever, ever, ever happen again. There are no symbols, there are no monuments whatsoever to any of the Nazis, none of them. So that there's a complete and total vanquishing of the Third Reich uh, and um, anything that would elevate them. There is, however, on the other hand, not a, a, a wiping out of the history. There is an actually a, a going deep into the history so that it won't happen again. Here, we have so far to go because we are not on the same page as a country, we're not on the same page. We're not even on the same page about what we're not on the same page of. Not nearly enough people really understand or know what happened in the Civil War. People are not even always in agreement of what the cause of the Civil War was and not, certainly not often aware of the meaning uh, of Reconstruction and then what happened afterward. And I can say this as a fact because, you know, when the Warmth of the Suns came out um, and I would, you know, go out and talk with people about it and I would hear people's response to it. And the response that I got over and over and over again was, I had no idea. I would hear that from people no matter of their background, part of the country that they were from, age. Lots of people would even say, the older people would even say, I had no idea this happened in my lifetime. So mm -hmm. that means that, you know, that they did not know basic facts, you know, basic realities about what life was like in a major part of our country in the South and even in the North where they, a lot of people didn't know about redlining and restrictive covenants. I mean, these are, these are facts of life, particularly for people who are in, who were born to what I would call the subjugated group, but were, were unknown to so, so many other people. People say they didn't, they didn't have, they had no idea. 
Well, not having an idea has consequences. You know, it has consequences in terms of, you know, who people, people's assumptions about an entire group, but it has uh, consequences on, you know, who people will hire and, you know, who, where they choose to live and where they choose to send their children and, you know, where they are willing to invest. I mean, all of these things have consequences, of course, how people vote. So these are the ways that not knowing our country's history has real consequences for everyday lives and for the policies and the direction of our country. Whereas in this other country that has really done the hard work of educating people and of, of, of interrogating their history, they have you know, found ways. It doesn't mean that everything's perfect, but it means that they are at least on the same page about what happened in that country. This is Aspen Ideas To Go. Thanks for listening. Today's global problems are complex, entrenched, and intertwined. The Aspen Ideas team has partnered with the Skoll Foundation to produce a new podcast about solutions. Solvers features social innovators from around the world. We think you'll like the show. Here's the trailer. Some of the most important problems that we're facing right now as humans everywhere in the world feel really intractable. I know what you mean, overwhelming. So big. Like democracy or coronavirus. Climate Climate change. change. Racial inequality. Right? And actually, inequality in so many areas, like access to medicine that can save your life. And access to money, capital, resources in an economy that's not built for you. Or access to energy, which helps you, well, you know, live, work, feed your kids. How do we go about solving these problems? And whose job is it to solve them? Solvers is a podcast where we get to talk to people who are taking on our most pressing problems and coming up with solutions. I'm Courtney Martin. I'm Guhe Mora. Courtney's in Oakland, California, and I'm in Nairobi, Kenya. And together, we're the hosts of a truly global show. And the people we talk to aren't in love with the idea of solvability, but complexity. Because these are complicated problems. Wrestling with that complexity is key, and it's hard to do. These solvers come with a deep sense of optimism. There's something being birthed right now that's really beautiful to watch, where everyone has decided that their job is to become a communicator. Of obsessiveness. And then we'll keep innovating and we'll keep pioneering from Africa. So in a way, you can see that we are changing the narrative. And imagination. And if we lose heart or if we lose sight of democracy, then it can be gone in a minute. And of being connected with and accountable to a community. In our time as people, we will solve these things. I don't know how much of that will be solved in my lifetime, and I'm totally okay with that. These conversations are revealing, insightful, nuanced, and often uncomfortable. But if you're discouraged by the problems we're facing today and think they're intractable, unsolvable, Come along with us. Meet some folks who could change your mind. The first episode of Solvers is out April 22nd, so hit the subscribe button now and we'll come to your feed. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Like you just heard, the first episode of Solvers drops April 22nd. Subscribe now. Let's get back to today's conversation. Here's Elizabeth Alexander. And so what could, you know, truth and reconciliation look like 
in a country like this, which is also so big, so diverse, and as you've uh, also, I think, compellingly laid out, so contradictorily and insufficiently educated about our history. When you think about truth and reconciliation, what could it look like? Well, you know, I say in this book that uh, I am presenting to everyone who chooses to read it a report. I'm like the building inspector of the <laughs> old house, all our country, you know, and, uh, you know, we, you know, the, I say that, you know, the caste system or caste is like the bones and race is the skin. Caste is what we cannot see. Race is the visible manifestation. It's the metric by which people are assigned a space in the, in the hierarchy going back to the time of enslavement. And so what I say there is that, you know, this is an x-ray of our country. You could see myself, see me as sort of like a radiologist and, you know, I am presenting the x-ray and describing the x-ray. It's the surgeon who does the actual operation. And so I do not present myself. And I would also say that um, the people who were born to what was historically the subjugated group in our country is in some ways in the least position and bears the greatest burden. It's such that, you know, that, that the, the burden should not be on people from the subordinated group to have all of the answers for a structure that they did not create and that their ancestors were in fact the targets of and that they even today we live under the shadow of and, and may be targeted as well. And so I do not present myself as having all the answers because I, it took all that I could do to just present this document uh, with a, a general diagnosis. But I you know, came to the idea of you know, truth and reconciliation is one possible a way to approach it. There are many, many, many things that need to happen because this is a structural problem. It's an, the infrastructure of our divisions. We don't even use the language in lay terms. I mean, so, social scientists use the term, but but you know, lay people don't use the terms. So it's it's almost like it's almost like a new concept and language for for most of us. And so this is a way of getting us to be able to think differently about what we think we know about our country. The ways that we've been talking about it have not solved all of the problems. Sometimes the ways that we talk about it can obstruct and obscure what we're dealing with. And so I think that the, the whole point of this is to allow us to see ourselves differently so that we can find ways to, to go directly to the infrastructure of a thing as opposed to what is the physical manifestation. But the idea of truth and reconciliation, if it were to be done well, if it were to be done right, if it were to be done efficiently and effectively, it would force us all to confront and to um, engage with what has happened before we came on the scene. It would force us to, uh, to look at where we are and you know this these are the kind of things that that did happen under different you know names in Germany they have happened in other places where people have had to really look deep at their history and if you don't look at the history then there's no way that you're going to engage with the history learn from the history and then you thus find yourself in this loop of not understanding how things happen. I, mean, I often say that, you know, we as Americans are like people who walked into a theater in the middle of a movie. And <laughs> there we are, we're seeing, we see a bus chasing a car, chasing a motorcycle. And, you know, mm -hmm. we're looking at it, we're in the middle of a movie, we're like, why is the bus chasing the car, chasing the motorcycle? Mm -hmm. And none of it makes sense. You can even watch to the end of the movie and it still doesn't make sense because you didn't catch the first half. And really that is what history is. History is what happened in the movie before you entered the theater. What happened in the first half before you entered the theater? And so that is what 
uh, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, if done seriously, if done correctly, if, if done with seriousness and purpose, then it would force us and allow us all to see what has happened in our country to get us to where we are. Mm, wouldn't that be wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be something? The sustained metaphor of the old house is, is powerfully uh, carried all the way through the book, uh, beginning with, as anyone who has an old house knows, that if you don't attend to something, if you don't figure out the source of something, it's not going to go away. And the way that you then bring us to that powerful exchange in the basement, in the leaking basement, in the literal leaking basement where there is a moment of, I would say, cast confrontation that feels like something different is going to happen. Yeah. Uh, so it's quite an accomplishment how you, how, you, how you do that. Thank you. I mean, this is uh, something that comes out of the accumulated observations, you know, the depth of thinking that goes into something like this, the, you know, you know, tremendous amount of you know, sitting with the research that you've come across, um, sitting with experiences, um, listening, listening, listening to uh, people um, as they describe what they've been through. And of course, you know, all of the, you know, the, the travel that, that had to go along with this. So this ended up all being a distillation of all of that and that ending, which you're speaking about, uh, which I don't want to spoil for people. I, I will leave that to people to read, but it actually is the, it's an opening, it's a portal to hopefulness um, and shows what can happen even in the sp smallest, seemingly smallest of, of interchanges that, you know, that sort of like uh, idea about the flap of a butterfly's wing that, mm -hmm. that can then yeah. um, shift the wind off the coast of Africa and then lead yeah. to a hurricane. You know, in theory, in our everyday lives, maybe there are ways that we can transcend what seems impossible and to cross those uh, those boundaries um, and, and that, that these things actually can happen. And you, you think about, I'm not being Pollyannish in any way that no one would ever call me that, but, but I do believe that, you know, when we have so many challenges and these challenges are, you know, economic, they are political, they are having to do with education, our criminal justice system, you know, all systems. And, and yet, even in the moment, as much as we have yet to do, there are things that an individual can do in the moment that can help shift the wind, if, if not, you know, overall, but just in our own spaces. And that we all have responsibilities to educate ourselves, and then to take the responsibility to make sure that others around us, you know, no, I think the, the era that we've been in is sort of uh, revealed to us who everyone is around us. I mean, I think a lot of us have discovered, you know, these are the people we're surrounded by. These are the things that they believe. And there've been a lot of surprises, I think, for a lot of people in the recent years. But what I think it does is it calls upon us to take the responsibility within our own lives to see what influence can we have. What influence can we have first on ourselves and on those that are closest to us and in those openings that might present um, and that miracles can happen. I mean, that, that actually was a miracle. Mm, mm, mm. I, I wanted to talk about the epics that you write and about your writing process. You know, a, a, an acclaimed journalist for many years, bureau chief at the New York Times in Chicago, and hearing and reporting some of the stories that eventually became a part of a lead into the warmth of other suns. And that book is 
an epic. It, it, it tells mm -hmm. an epic American tale. It has so many voices in it. It crosses the decades. And so too, these many years later, you've, you've not written a small treatise, but rather you've, you've written something that I consider, you know, an epic in its, in its ambition, in its, in its reach. And in the cases of both books, the work that it does for us when it moves around in the world. So I wanna talk about, about the work in the world in a minute, but first I would love to talk about form and moving from journalism uh, and editing and long form into these books. I have always been a narrative writer. I mean, that's just who I am. And, and wherever I've been, um, I work in narrative and I, it, even if, you know, the, the um, most straightforward hard news story, if it had my byline on it, it was going to have something narrative in it and it would be the thing that would make it on the front page. So, so I've always been uh, that person who's always been narratively uh, inclined. So my inclinations were to do this kind of writing. And of course, you know, at the, at the New York Times, most of the stories that I wrote were much, much longer than most stories with it would, would usually run. So I have always been, you know, drawn toward long form. And this was a natural progression. This felt very, very much like an evolution that was sort of organic, moving toward what I had always been inside, which was, you know, narrative writing. I found that, you know, what, what ends up happening with this kind of work is that, you know, you go out and you uh, find the individuals or you first figure out what it is that you want to say and then you find the individuals. I'm always open-minded because I'm just, I don't know where the people are going to lead me. I have no idea what the story will ultimately be until I find the people for it. I mean, with Warmth of the Sons, um, you know, I ended up having a casting call. I auditioned people for the role wow. of being protagonist in this, this book. And uh, in doing so, I had a chance to, you know, hear the testimony of 1,200 people who were my spiritual guides, tour guides through the era that I would be describing. You know, when I was doing Warmth of the Suns, I mean, the choice was, do you go into the archives first or do you go to the people first? And I'm always the, the type of person, I mean, no matter what the form is, I'm, I'm always looking at the people because that's where the story is going to be. And that's where the heartbeat of the piece will be, whatever it might be. So I, that's what I did. And, and I, um, I had the tremendous honor and good fortune to have, um, you know, to have been able to meet so, so many people and had more people than I possibly could have included. In fact, a lot of them are, you know, make cameos in that book. Um, but to settle on those three and, and to hear their stories in terms of the writing, you know, the writing and the research is all embedded. Um, I would say that with all of the work that I do, it is um, usually multidisciplinary. I mean, I am calling upon um, anthropology, participant observation is a big part of what I do. Um, you know, sociology, psychology, history, of course, you know, all of these different disciplines to be able to pull together uh, whatever is necessary in order to tell that narrative. And the work itself is very much like sewing a quilt. You know, I take these fragments of fabric. Some of the fabric I feel I have to weave myself, actually. And it does not appear in the beginning how it's going to end up. But you, you, it takes a, a bit of faith to know that ultimately, in the end, all of these disparate uh, scraps and remnants of fabric 
will somehow come together to make this whole. And that that's how I approach um, any of the work that I do, but certainly with these two books, Cast uh, and, um, and Warmth of the Suns, that was the approach. And, and that's, that's just the way that it works for me. And, and, and then, you know, they, 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 they sit on the shelf, they come in the hands, and then they work in the world. I remember um, when many years ago, when you came with Warmth of Other Sons to New Haven, one of the things that just stayed with me so powerfully was there was um, an African-American man, probably in his 60s, and he had his very elderly father with him. And his father asked you a question and he said, we've been reading this book together and my father never spoke about his migration and now he won't stop talking about it. That the book opened up the ability for him to talk about the enormity of that story and, and what it meant. And, and I, I just thought that was, and, and you said at the time, you said pretty much every reading, yeah. some yeah. version of that happens. So, you know, now we're, we're not able to be with each other in quite the same way, but you are moving around um, with cast. And so um, I, would, I would love to know how the, how the audience experience is going. Well, I, I wanted to say one other thing that, that has happened in the time since the visit there at Yale is that it, it's really stunning to me that I hear from more people than you would imagine uh, who will come up to me and they will say that, again, their parent, their grandparent never would talk about it. It was mm -hmm. too painful, post-traumatic stress. And that, um, that once they got to a certain point and uh, many of the people would get very ill, you know, the, the process of life, and that they would come up to me and they would say that this book, The Warmth of Other Sons, was the last book that their parent, their grandmother, whoever it was, was reading before mm. they left the planet. Mm. And that they would say that that brought them a sense of closure, a sense of peace, a sense of having, um, a, of being able to put into context what they had suffered. And that is just, you know, a tremendous you know, overwhelmingly powerful thing to hear from someone. And I, you know, I, every time I think about it, I just, you know, get really overwhelmed at the power of that. Oh my goodness, that is overwhelming. Wow. There was a, a, a here in, in, in cast, one chapter that really flattened me, cortisol, telomeres, and the lethality of cast. And that is where you talk about, and I wanted to get this very precise, how people of color with more education experience lower life expectancy because they, quote, continually press against the borders of caste. And then what you say is that the caste system and being on its lower rungs certainly takes years off your life, but the contestation with the caste system even more. I, I've thought yeah. about this zone a whole lot uh, across <laughs> my life, but I, I had not seen that distinction made so clearly. Could you say more about that? Yeah, it's, it's really stunning. And it turns out that there are um, several studies that have made that you know, shocking and in some ways you know, um, incongruous revelation, um, because mm -hmm. this is not to say that people who are um, impoverished 
do not suffer tremendously in our society. That's not to say that at all. And that people who have had the luxury of being able to get an education and be able to get positions of some influence do not have advantages you know, that are part of the economy, the way that things work. But what it's to say is that, that caste is in some ways a way of sharpening the uh, awareness. Class allows us to, in some ways, um, be able to be the marker you know, it's the thing that that creates the boundary. It's the thing that sharpens the awareness of what caste actually is. Mm -hmm. Because when you've accounted for everything else, you know, when you have accounted for, you know, I actually described caste as the bones, race as the skin, and then class is the you know, education, the accents, addiction, the clothing, all the other things that mm -hmm. we do have control over. And, and yet, when you have accounted for all of that, when you have factored in all other um, possible characteristics that could affect how a person is being treated, how they're seen, how they're, you know, what happens to them in this world. Then you're left with only one thing, and that is caste, which of course in our country, in other countries and other societies, the metric may be religion or ethnicity or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. In ours, it is phenotype and, you know, one's presumed or declared quote unquote race. And that is the, that is the, the uh, signature of what I'm just I'm saying is caste is essentially if is nothing more in some ways than policing the boundaries, keeping people in a fixed place. And so when you breach that boundary, when you step out of the place where you're where, where people like yourself are expected to be, that is when you're bumping up against caste. You're bumping against the unconscious biases, the unconscious expectations of where an individual should or is, or deserves to be or is worthy of being in our society. And so the people who are more likely to be bumping up against uh, the re breaching the walls of caste would be those who are stepping outside of the presumed uh, roles that have been in place in our country for longer than they were not. Because you have to remember, we have to all remember that, you know, the, the mainstreaming of African-Americans into, um, into the body politic of the country to be able to enter into spheres where they had not been before primarily didn't open up for the masses of, of African-Americans until after the civil rights movement, which was resisted for so long that it actually didn't go into effect until the 1970s. So th this idea of African-Americans moving into the mainstream and being able to do all of the kinds of things, presumably that they had pre been prevented from being able to do before, means that th this is all relatively new. This is really relatively new only within a couple of generations. And so within the lifespan of many, many, many people alive today. And so when people are in these positions, professional positions, middle class, upper middle class, they are often more likely to experience the, you know, the shortening of the telomeres and, you know, higher cortisol levels and higher indicators of stress. Stress that's related to being in contention on a regular basis with the assumptions about where people look like them should be class in some ways becomes like the contrast dye that's used to be able to see where the arteries are. When you can see the class, class allows you to see, oh, this is where they're supposed to be. And this is where they're running into problems because they are not supposed to be there. You know, we can see what happened with one of the greatest breaches in our country's history, you might say, of, of caste, which was, was 2008 when uh, we had the first Black president. And we could see the pushback 
and um, the resentments that occurred, you know, someone standing in open, you know, a session, you know, of Congress and saying, you lie. I mean, all of these things that were, you know, there's, there are many, 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 many ways of, of cataloging the many unusual shows of, you know, disrespect and resistance because this is not where people are presumed to be. And that's writ large, but of course, in you know, everyday experience of so many people, the health outcomes you know, tell the tale that when you are up against the restrictions that have been embedded over generations, there will be consequences, pushback, and resentments that actually you know, speak their names on the bodies of, of people who are having to deal with this on a regular basis. Mm. Well, I am so grateful to you for the generosity of this conversation. I am so grateful to you for all of your work. I'm so grateful to you for this book. Uh, again, you know, um, it's it's doing its work and it's, it's only the beginning. And uh, there are so many conversations that we need to have uh, that it will help us have. And so for that, I thank you deeply. Isabel Wilkerson is a leading author in narrative nonfiction. She's won a Pulitzer Prize and National Humanities Medal. Her latest book, Cast, is a New York Times bestseller, Oprah's book club pick, and made the long list for the National Book Award. Elizabeth Alexander is a poet, educator, memoirist, scholar, and cultural advocate. At Barack Obama's 2009 inauguration, she delivered her poem, Praise Song for the Day. Their conversation was held by Aspen Words as part of their Winter Words author series. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's discussion is from Aspen Words, and this show is produced by Marcy Krivenin and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.